If you want to grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 20. Kids and I were at the pool this week and we were playing shark. I don't know what shark looks like in your family. I think it's different in every family. But shark in our family is when a parent springs up out of the water to scare the little innocent child. And so my kids love shark. And and so I was swimming along the bottom of the pool and I sprung up into Annabeth's face. And there we are face to face. And she puts her little hands on my cheeks and she says, Daddy, you are a mess. I said, no, I'm not. Daddy's not a mess. And the reason I know I'm not a mess, I didn't explain this to her because she's three, obviously. But uh, the reason I know I'm not a mess is because I know people who are a mess. How many of you know somebody who's a mess? Just raise your hand. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably the person sitting next to you, especially if you're married. Uh, right. I know people who are a mess, uh, and compared to them, I'm no mess. But that's the magical word, isn't it? Compared. Um, in fact, comparing is... Is such a strong word in our vocabulary that I think if you took it out of our dictionary and you took it out of our social consciousness, we wouldn't even recognize the world that we live in because we are always comparing ourselves to somebody else. People that we know, people that we don't know, people that we are like, people that we're different from. We are always comparing ourselves. We're doing it consciously. We're doing it unconsciously. We are comparing ourselves everywhere that we go. The last few weeks, we've looked at some different parables that Jesus taught to understand what the culture of the kingdom of Jesus is like. Colossians chapter 1 says that you and I, who are in Christ, who have put our faith in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord, we've been transferred from one kingdom into another kingdom. We were born into the domain of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. It's very sad, but our sin got us there. The sin that our parents passed down to us, the sin that we passed down to our children, our sin caused us to be born in the domain of darkness. But in Christ, we've been transferred now into his kingdom and his kingdom has a culture just like every kingdom has a culture things that are important rules by which that kingdom operates and so we've been looking at the culture of the kingdom of God Um, two weeks ago we saw that the culture of the kingdom is a culture of forgiveness last week we saw that the culture of the kingdom is a culture of patience what do you do when you're in a season where you really need something you really want something you're waiting on something but it's just not yet you're living in that window of not yet we have patience remember the mustard seed and today we're going to see that in the kingdom of Jesus comparison is unnecessary and really unhelpful in the kingdom of Jesus comparison is unnecessary. And honestly, it's unhelpful. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1. Jesus said, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarii for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those, he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. And again, he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. 
And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarii. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarii. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first and the first last. So Jesus tells a story about a man who owns a vineyard and He goes out early in the morning when the sun is coming up and he finds some people to work in his vineyard and they go and he agrees with them a denarii a day, which was just an average day's wage. And so if you were an average kind of blue collar, normal worker in the first century uh, Israel, then you would have made a denarii a day. And so he agrees to them a fair price. Well, a little bit later, 9 a.m., he goes back into the village, the town, and he says, I need some more workers and some more go at 9 a.m. And then he does it at noon and then he does it at three and then he does it again at five o'clock. All the same. When the sun goes down, he gathers everybody up and he starts distributing his payment. And he starts with those who just came at five o'clock and he gives them that same denarii. And so you got to imagine what it would have felt like to be the one who had uh, been there since early morning. They're thinking to themselves, all right, this is good because he's paying, he's being really, really generous to these guys who have only worked a few hours. How much more generous is he going to be to us who have been out here all day long in the heat of the day? But when it comes their time, they just get the agreed upon wage, which isn't very fair, at least not in our minds. If you were that worker uh, and those early morning workers, you would be mad too. And so they grumbled at him. You ever grumble at somebody? That's differently, different than grumbling against somebody. When you grumble against somebody, they don't know you're grumbling, but they grumbled at him. And he says, what's your problem? We had an agreement and I came through in my agreement. What does it matter to you? What I pay everyone else. You know, the many messages Jesus is teaching, because remember, parables um, are just more than simple illustrations to illustrate a simple point. Jesus is always communicating something about himself, something about his kingdom. And one of the things he's communicating is he's going to give grace to whoever he wants to give grace to. Whether you've been in for a long time, you're an insider and you've done all the right things, he's going to give grace to you. But he's also going to give grace to anybody who will come to faith in him. Whether you're an insider, or an outsider, all who come to Jesus have faith or get grace through faith. But the problem started for these early morning workers when, what, when they compared what they had and what those late workers got. Comparison came in and suddenly there was a problem. We're always comparing ourselves and Jesus knew it. In fact, many of his parables have to do with us comparing ourselves to different people. He's always saying things like the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. If you exalt yourself over people, you're going to be humbled. I want to show you another place where he talks about these same things. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. Verse 7, 
And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Skip down to verse 15. And when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. Whenever something is tight, just blame your spouse. It always works. Verse 21, and the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to a slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, master, what you have commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my dinner. So Jesus has been invited to a wedding or uh, been invited to a, a special dinner at the house of a Pharisee. We know that from earlier in Luke chapter 14. And as he's sitting there, he's walking, watching everyone kind of jockey for the places of honor. So at any, any dinner, there are places of honor, like in our wedding reception in our culture, where are the seats of honor at a wedding reception? It's at the, the head table with the bride and groom, or maybe at the table with the mother and father of the bride, or, or, or at the table with the mother and father of the groom. Those are the seats of honor. And so at this dinner that Jesus is at, the seats of honor are the seats closest to the host. You can imagine a large rectangle and the host of the dinner would have sat at the head. And so those seats that are closest to him, those are the seats of honor. Those are the insiders. Those are the, 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 the people who are in on the, the most uh, important conversations. And so Jesus is watching as all these men uh, are trying to figure out how they can get as close as possible to the seats of honor. And Jesus, Jesus would have been a very scary dinner guest because he's watching this and he just starts speaking in the middle. And he says, hey, essentially stop that. When you get invited to a dinner, don't try to get a seat of honor. As he's watching these people try to rank themselves. Well, I'm better than him, not as good as him. We're do I fit in the middle? And then he tells a parable about a man who threw a big dinner and he invited all of his friends. He invited all the people like him. And when it came time for the dinner, he sent his servant out to collect everybody. Okay, the dinner's ready. Come on. And they all made excuses. They couldn't come. It sounded like valid excuses to me too. And he was so angry. He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to all those who we didn't invite to the poor, to the crippled, to the lame, to the blind, and I want you to bring them in. The slave says, we've already brought them in. And he says, fine, I want you to go out on the highway, and I just want you to start waving people in because my dinner's going to be fill, full, and everyone who got invited first will not taste it. Now, you remember who Jesus is 
speaking to. He's speaking in, at, a, at a dinner party of important people. Is that the house of a Pharisee? We'll talk about them in just a second. These are important people. These are the insiders in Jewish culture in the first century. And Jesus is saying to them through this parable, listen, just because you think that you are high up on some kind of scale doesn't mean you're high up in the kingdom of God. Just because you can have honor at a table because of the seat that you sit in doesn't mean that you're going to have honor in the kingdom of God. Why? Because the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Those who humble themselves will be exalted and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And I would judge them, these men at this dinner table, if I didn't know exactly what it was like to to walk into a room and try to figure out where I rank. I was at um, a mechanic place this week getting one of our cars fixed and I had this stuff out in front of me and I was working and I was thinking about it and they had one of those little uh, Uh, help us help you cards. You know what I'm talking about? Those evaluation cards where you fill in the blanks and let them know about how they're serving you. And it had a a couple of categories, you know, the services that they provide. And then you could rank them by filling in the little oval, excellent, good, fair, or poor. And I was just sitting there and I was looking at the card and I was thinking about what we're talking about today. And I thought, that's it. That's a perfect picture of at least the trap of comparison that I get in. Because first I'll evaluate myself. Am I excellent? Am I good? Am I fair? Or am I poor? And then I'll evaluate somebody else. So you take something as simple as the home that you live in. Is my home excellent? Is it, is it, is it good? Is it fair? Is it poor? I don't know. Is this normal? And maybe your house is normal. I, I don't know. It's just a normal house. So I'm, gonna, I'm average right there. Fair. And, and then I take my card and I compare it to your card and evaluate your house. Well, their house is really nice. It's updated. It's nice. It's in the neighborhood. The neighborhood's got the wrought iron fence, not the privacy fence. That's how you know, you know, what kind of house it is, what kind of fence they've got. And so their house is excellent. My house is fair. Their house is excellent. What about the income that I make? Well, it's definitely poor. Right? That's probably what you're thinking. But man, they, that, that guy, that, that family right there, I mean, they are rolling in it. Or you might look and say, I'm rolling in it. They're not rolling in it. I'm excellent. They're fair. What about my kids? Their kids behave perfectly. Their kids are excellent. Their kids say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and please and thank you, and they obey the first time and clean up their rooms, and they don't fight with their siblings. My kids are over there destroying something right now. As I'm filling out this card about my kids, they are destroying something. You could go on and on and on and on. You evaluate yourself and then you evaluate somebody else and then you compare. And it's sad because now somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. You either win if when you evaluate you come out on top or you lose when you evaluate and you don't measure up. That's why none of us are content That's why you don't know anybody who's content. It's because we have chained our contentment to somebody else's success or failure. I can only be happy if if you're failing because I'm consistently comparing myself and so the only way I can be happy with what I have is if I have more than you. 
But the problem is, is when you chain your contentment to somebody else's success or failure, you, mo- you know more than just one person. And so you're always going to know somebody who has more than you, who is up there, higher, has a better seat of honor than you. And you're always going to know somebody who doesn't, who has less, is less in our culture. And so your contentment and my contentment is just all over the place because now it's chained not to anything concrete, not to anything permanent, but to somebody else's success or failure. And listen, that would be bad enough. That would be bad enough if we just did the comparison thing with the way that we looked or the the things that we had or the way that our kids acted. It would be bad enough if we just compared those things, but we take it a step further and we'll even compare each other's righteousness. I want you to turn to another parable that Jesus told just a few pages later, Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter nine or eighteen. Luke chapter eighteen, verse nine. Luke chapter eighteen, verse nine. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So, if you have ever looked at your life and then you've looked at somebody else's life and you went, "I'm, I'm." pretty righteous. I'm more righteous than them. I do this and they don't do this. I don't do that and they do do that. If you've ever done that and I have and I'm sure you have, then Jesus is speaking to us. Those who have trusted in our own righteousness and we've looked at contempt on somebody else because they didn't measure up to us. He tells us this parable. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went up to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you have ever, ever looked at somebody and said, I am more righteous than you. Now that probably didn't come out of your mouth. Jesus' promises to you and to me is we will eat those words. If you've ever looked on in contempt at somebody who was not as godly as you, you will eat your words. You know, I'm sure there are 15,000 reasons why pastors get stupid and have affairs. I think the enemy does put targets on leaders, spiritual leaders, because when they fall, it's a domino effect and it affects a lot of other people. But one of the other reasons that we never talk about why I think spiritual leaders do things that are dumb and ruin their lives and the lives of many other people is because most of their lives, they've looked at their own godliness and then they've looked at everybody else and they're on top every time. They're pastors, they're ministers, they're spiritual leaders. But the self-righteous always, always eat their words. 
The, the two characters in, in Jesus' parable here are the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, the only thing you need to know about the tax collector is it didn't get lower than that. It just didn't get any lower bottom of the barrel than the tax collector. A tax collector was somebody, a Jewish man, who was working for the Roman Empire and helping fund the terrorization of the people of Israel. And, and not only that, the tax collector was charging extra taxes just to put money in his own pockets. And so if you wanted to describe somebody who was really, 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 really awful, you could just compare it to a tax collector everybody would have get the picture. But the Pharisee, on the other hand, if the tax collector is the bottom of the barrel, the Pharisee is the top of the barrel in the first century in Israel. But the Pharisees always seem to be Jesus's punching bag, don't they? You read the Gospels, he's always beating on the Pharisees like a speed bag. I mean, it's amazing. They're just always the, at the, the end of Jesus's jokes and sarcasm and stories. Um, and so Jesus um, was not a big fan of the Pharisees, apparently, but the Pharisees didn't start out bad. In fact, generations before the stories that we're reading, the first century, generations before, you remember the story of the Bible, the Israelites are supposed to worship how many gods? One God. But what do they do? They worship all kinds of other gods, all kinds of pagan idols they would get caught up in. And so God would warn them over and over and over again through the prophets. That's what most of the prophets are about, telling the people of Israel to straighten up. If they don't straighten up, what? Something bad is going to happen. Well, eventually something bad does happen. Babylon comes and just lays waste to Israel, destroys Jerusalem, and takes a bunch of the Israelites back into Babylon. That's where we get the stories of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the stories of Daniel. Well, after a while, the Jewish people are allowed to leave Babylon and go back to Israel. So when they get back to Israel, this group of people get together and they say, hey, exile, bad. Let's not do that again. What happened to our parents and the generations before that, that caused them and us to go into exile, have to be judged and taken off to Babylon? What did they do that got them there? And let's not do it. Well, what they had done is they had neglected God's word. They had just forgotten it. They didn't do what it said. They didn't know it. And so this group of people gets together and they say, we don't want that exile thing to ever happen to us again or to our children again. So let's dedicate ourselves to knowing God's word and doing it. Now that sounds exactly what we say every week. But what happened is the same thing that happens to you. You ever have something that's good in your life? Is good ever good enough? No, you've, you've always got to get better. When you're good, you need better. When you have better, you need best. And so the Pharisees, they kind of started with that. And so generation after generation after generation, they would say, listen, our parents, they did this. We can do better. Our parents just tithe 10% of all their income. Hey, let's just tithe 10% of like everything that we get in. Uh, our, 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 then the next generation said, our parents tithe uh, over everything, but they didn't tithe off their, their garden plants. So let's tithe off of our garden plants. Well, uh, the next generation would say, well, hey, our parents tithe off their garden plants and everything else, but they didn't tithe off the little small garden where they did their herbs and spices. And so let's tithe our little herbs and spices in the garden. And they just kept adding and adding more and more rules, more and more boundaries, more and more fences. And eventually, it didn't have anything to do with honoring God. It just had to do with being more righteous than those who came before them and those who were around them. They were going to outdo and they were going to outperform everyone around them. That's why they're Jesus' punching bag. It's what this Pharisee is doing here in Jesus' parable. I mean, look at how he prays. He doesn't even really pray, does he? He just says things to God. He's not asking for anything. He's not giving any kind of praise. He spends the whole time talking about how wonderful he is. And how does he describe how wonderful he is? He describes how much better he is 
than the person he's comparing himself to. He's not like this tax collector. But Jesus says, who went home justified? The tax collector at the bottom of the barrel who beat his chest, who didn't even feel comfortable coming into the temple because of his own sinfulness and broken. Did you notice in my version of the Bible, he refers to himself as the sinner, not a sinner, but the sinner. It's the way the apostle Paul said that he was chief of all sinners, the first in line. See, it would be bad enough if we just compared our possessions and our things and our abilities and our talents, but we take it a step further when we begin to compare our righteousness to each other. This is what I do. What do you do? This is what I watch. What do you watch? This is how I pray. How do you pray? This is how I read my Bible. This is how much I read my Bible. What do you do? And we get puffed up. How do you know if you have the righteousness of a self-righteousness of a Pharisee? If you need somebody else in the equation to feel righteous, then you're self-righteous. If you need somebody else in the picture to know whether or not you are a righteous person, then you are self-righteous. If you need somebody to compare yourself to, somebody to be better than, somebody to measure yourself against, that's self-righteousness. And Jesus says to us, Jesus says to me, I will eat my words. That's scary. Because comparison in the kingdom of God, it's unnecessary And it's definitely unhelpful. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 20. I want you to notice that dissatisfaction and comparison go hand to hand, hand in hand. Verse 10, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarii. So when those early workers saw what everybody else was getting, they thought we're definitely going to get more because we've been out here in the hot sun. We've been doing all the work. We're going to get more. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and he said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to you this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So notice that these early workers, they were totally satisfied with the agreement that they had made with the landowner in the morning. But it was only when they compared themselves to what somebody else had did dissatisfaction come in. Are you dissatisfied with how much money you make? Why? It's probably because you've compared what you make to what somebody you know makes. Are you dissatisfied with the size of your house, the color of your house, the way your house looks, the kind of furniture you have in your house, what you have in your backyard, how many TVs you have in your house, how big those TVs are, how high def those TVs are? Are you dissatisfied with what's in your house? It's probably because you've compared what's in your house to what's in somebody else's house. Are you dissatisfied with the behavior of your children? Why? It may be because they are bad and wicked. That's what I say to my kids all the time wicked. You're bad. You're a sinner. You change. You need Jesus. But you know as a parent what it feels like when you compare your kids to somebody else's kids and they don't measure up. It's horrifying. Dissatisfaction and comparison go hand to hand. In fact, I would say to you, you would be much 
a much more satisfied person if you just stop comparing what you have and what you are to somebody else. You would be more happy with what you have. And I want you to notice the landowner's response. Because it's not going to be enough today if we just say stop comparing ourselves. It's almost going to be impossible. You can't help it. You've been doing it since you were a child. You do it when you're thinking about it and when you're not thinking about it. So we need a way towards freedom. And look what the landowner said. But he answered to them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarii? Verse 14, Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? You know what he's saying in our language? Mind your own business. What does it matter to you? I promised you a denarii and I gave you one. Mind your own business. The way for freedom for us, because that's what we're after today. We're not after just a spank on the hands because you and I compare ourselves and apparently we're not supposed to do that. I want to be free from that because freedom from comparison means more satisfaction, more contentment, more happiness, more just enjoyable life because I'm not worried what somebody else has and what I have and those things. So we want freedom from comparison today. The way to freedom, I think, according to this story, is to just steward your own responsibility. You know, steward is a manager. Just manage what it is God has made you responsible for in this season of your life. What calling has he put on you? What is he asking you to manage and steward? Maybe it's your family men. Maybe it's your your wife and your kids and your house and all those Steward your own responsibility. Ladies, it's maybe to your family, maybe a Bible study that you lead. Maybe what, what's your calling at work? What, what responsibility has he given you in your workplace? What responsibility has he given you on your street? What responsibility has he given you in your extended family? What responsibility has he given you among your friends? What responsibility has he given you in some ministry that you're involved in here at the church or in the city or around the world? Whatever it is, steward your own responsibility. See, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, that, uh, or Hebrews chapter 14, I, verse 11, I can't really remember, it doesn't matter, but it's in Hebrews, that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what that means is Jesus never changes. He's never changed. He's always been the same. We know that about God. He's always unchanging. That's his nature. But when you read the scripture, the people, their stories are all different. Noah, his story is unique. Noah's story is different than Abraham's who who comes later. Isaac, Abraham's son, his story is different. Isaac's son, Jacob, he's got his own story. He had 12 sons. One of those sons' names was Judah, and Judah had a weird story. It involved his daughter-in-law. It's super weird, but it was his own unique story. Out of Judah's family came King David. King David had a unique story. He didn't have it. Nobody had a story like David. You remember Goliath and Bathsheba, David and Bathsheba's son, Solomon, David's son. He had his own story too. It involved the Queen of Sheba. Wisest man who ever lived. The prophets, remember the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. If you go to your Old Testament later this afternoon, those three books, they almost look exactly the same. Same in length, same in content, and content almost, the prophetic thing. But yet each of their stories is different. John the Baptist had a different story than Jesus, who he prepared the way for. The disciples, they were all disciples of Jesus, and yet not one of their stories was the same. Peter had his story. Paul had his story. John, the beloved disciple, he had his story. 
you have your own story and responsibility which God has given you. So steward it. Manage it. Stay in your lane. Years ago, Amanda and I lived in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and uh, I was working at a church there and the city that we lived in peaked like in the late 1950s and early 1960s. And so by the time we're living there, it, it, it was not the city that it once was. It once was the fastest growing city in America. It was the fir- one of the first suburbs of Dallas and in the 1950s and 60s. It was the most desirable place to live in that area. It was amazing. But when we were there 40 or 50 years later, it was just kind of worn out. Things weren't quite as nice anymore. They didn't, hadn't invented master planning or anything. And so it was just a worn out, tired town that no one really would desire to live in. But we loved it. We we lived a block away from our church, but our home was really small and it was really old and it was just, you know, we had to fix it up. And so it was kind of one of those things. And, uh, but we enjoyed our life. But then we went and visited some friends in one of the new suburbs of Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, one of the fastest growing cities in America at that time. And so I remember rolling into their neighborhood going, I cannot believe that people my age live in a neighborhood like this. This is unbelievable. The homes were so beautiful. They were brand new. When we walked into their house, their carpet was so new. It had that little triangle thing effect from the vacuums. You know what I'm talking about? That's how you know that you have clean carpet. When you get that triangle thing going on from doing your vacuum back and forth, that is when something is clean. And their carpet had that. They had nice counters. I mean, it was just amazing. They had a yard. It was perfect. And then we got in our car and we went back to our tired, worn out city. And I'm going to be honest, if I had to pick, I would have moved the next day. It was nice. And it probably wasn't even that much more expensive than the house that I was living in. But the thing that God kept reminding me, is that just not what he was asking us to do in that season of our lives? That we had a calling, we had responsibility, which he had given us, and that meant that we were going to live in a tired, worn-out city. And to just mind my own business. To just do what it is he had been telling us to do. And let him worry about what it is he was telling other people to do. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul says at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is where we'll end this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. And that's in the Bible. That sounds like something your dad would say to you. It's like what your mom would say to you when you were trying to nose in when your siblings were getting in trouble. Make it your ambition. Make it, make it your purpose, your goal. To lead a quiet life and attend to your own business. You could leave today and you could compare everything that you have and everything that you are. Or you could leave today and you could 
discover and know this is what it is that God is asking us to do in this window and season of our lives. And I'm just going to do this. And I'm going to concern myself and focus on stewarding my own responsibility. And listen, this is something I'm tempted to do. Don't make what God has called you to do in this season of your life the standard for everybody else. You know, if God is calling you to steward your own responsibility and send your kids to public school, send them to public school. If he's doing homeschool, do homeschool. If he's doing some other kind of hybrid form of homeschool, public school, Christian school, whatever it is, do that. But your calling is not necessarily the standard for everyone else. When we started this church, people, when we were kind of in the midst of it, people heard what we were doing. Sometimes people will call and they say, hey, we want to go to lunch. And I found out like lunch with strangers about starting a new church, not a good idea. Just not a good idea. And usually what would happen at those lunches is they would be like, hey, I heard you're starting a new church. Fantastic. Houston needs a lot of churches. Are you going to do this? Because if you're going to do this thing, this thing, whatever their thing was, then we'd like to come. And what I would always say to people, and it's what I say to people today, is listen, that's your thing. Like you're called to... Uh, you know, do Bible study at your workplace, do it. That is fantastic. That would be amazing. You love homeless people, serve homeless people. That is amazing. Go and do it. You want to start a Bible study in prison, do a Bible study in prison. That is the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. You want to dig water wells in Cambodia, go and dig water wells in Cambodia. We'll pray for you. We'll send you out. It would be amazing. And sometimes people are like, that's all I wanted to know is if a church could support what it is I'm doing. But other times it would be like, no, your thing needs to be my thing. Because what God has called me to do is the standard for what he's called everyone else to do, and it's just not true. And what the scripture reminds us is you discover what it is he's asking you to do in this season of your life, and go and do it. And don't worry what everybody else is doing around you. Because in the kingdom of Jesus, comparison It's unnecessary and it's unhelpful. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you you can set us free from that, God, and just confess how guilty I am of it and probably in my flesh won't even make it the rest of the day before I unconsciously do it again. So come and bring your supernatural work today and set us free. Satisfy. In a moment of prayer and quietness, you should just ask yourself, ask God to reveal to you maybe the areas of your life that you are consistently comparing with other people. Maybe what you have and maybe your righteousness. Where do you fall into that trap? Jesus, set us free. Set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.